back finally with the Call Me Culinary podcast. We've just been super, super busy at Call Me uh, doing our Market Hall totes. If you haven't heard about that, check it out on Instagram. It started out as a way to keep our members and different people in the community busy during the COVID shutdown, but it's really just exploded over the last three weeks. So super, super grateful for that, but it's definitely pulled my focus from the podcast. Can't wait to get back into the swing of recording. Uh, We've got a couple ones locked and loaded, just need to get them edited, and some really exciting people to interview in the coming weeks. So now that we've got some systems in place to execute the totes, uh, super stoked to get back to some podcasting. In this episode, we chat with Christine Flynn about her travels, kitchen culture in different parts of the world, her work at IQ Food Co., and balancing a career in this industry with family life. So, on to the podcast. Um, so, uh, we'll just take a couple minutes, introduce yourself, um, kind of a little bit of career background and what you do now and stuff like that. So my name is Christine Flynn, and I am currently exec chef and partner at IQ Food Co., which is a Toronto-based restaurant group, healthy, fast, casual. Um, So we have locations kind of all over the GTA, uptown, downtown, financial district. Um, And I've actually been with IQ now for, we're coming up on on seven years, um, other than the fact that I'm temporarily laid off right now due to COVID. Um, but before that, uh, I'm originally from Nova Scotia and, um, moved a lot as a kid, but, um, after university worked at a couple restaurants in Halifax and then ended up getting sort of scooped up and going to Massachusetts. And I worked on Nantucket, which is an Island in the middle of the Atlantic, sort of 30 miles out to sea. Uh, I worked there for seven summers, um, and winters did kind of various things, staged in Burgundy. Um, I worked at a catering place in, in an exotic little town called Kitchener Waterloo, Ontario. Um, and gosh, what else did I do? I went to culinary school finally, uh, in New York. So I've kind of been, I kind of been all over the place, but I'm pretty, pretty rooted in Ontario now. How does anyone end up anywhere? <laughs> but um, my family moved uh, to to Kitchener Waterloo when I was nine, um, and we moved away again when I was about sixteen. But then my mom moved back uh, to do. She actually did her her PhD at the University of Waterloo. Um, yeah, when she was you know mid to late fifties, which is oh wow, yeah, 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 yeah. And people are like, oh, what did she study? Like like women's literature and I'm like no no like human kinetics and biomechanics um she's so cool yeah it is really cool and it's cool to think that you can at 55 um you know not that that's so old now that I'm I'm pushing get getting up there myself but um it's crazy to think that you know you can do this sort of heroic thing of like raising children and sending them off into the world and then be like you know I think I'm gonna get a master's (laughs) Yeah, it's so amazing. And like, you know what? I'm just going to go to school for another seven years and become a doctor. Or just like the courage to change careers at all. I feel like the longer you're in a career, the harder that might feel. Yeah, I mean, both my parents were always um, 
they were kind of never still in their careers. So, I mean, my mom was a physio, um, but, you know, so going back to school and doing human kinetics was an extension of that. But, you know, she went from doing physio to learning acupuncture to sort of, um, she actually specialized in helping women with incontinence. <laughs> She's like, we're really going off on a tangent here, but you know, she's one of like the few people who, um, in her area, like knew how to treat that. Cause it's, you know, it's a muscle. Um, so yeah, both my parents were always just taking additional courses, specializing, learning new things. And, um, and I, I mean, that really has shaped me as a cook as well. Like just the idea that you, you can't stay still. Um, and now more than ever, I think all cooks are, are, you know, kind of at a point where we're figuring out if we want to pivot, um, if we want to, if we want to do a 180, um, cause the future of restaurants right now is really, it's, it's like the wild west right now. Intangible for sure. So, um, pre all of this, take me through a day in the life of being the executive chef at IQ Food Co. Um, well, it really changes, uh, which is one of the things that I liked about the job in the first place. I had been working very, you know, it wasn't fine dining, but it was, uh, I mean, it was priced like fine dining, um, but it was, you know, upscale bistro uh, in in Massachusetts, both on the island. And then I was exec chef of another restaurant as well by the time I finished there. So I ran two restaurants for the same couple. Um, and that was really unpleasant you know, by the end of it, like I was really burnt out. I was, uh, I, when we opened the second restaurant, I was working like six, seven days a week, um, long hours. I wasn't really good at delegating. So there was a lot of stuff that like only I could do. Like when we first opened the second restaurant, I was doing not just expediting, not just attempting to work grill, but I was also baking all the bread. I was doing all the desserts. Like it was insane. Um, so I really burnt out right around the time I hit 30 and then, got connected with IQ Food Co., who were looking for someone who, you know, wasn't necessarily like your your archetypal, like fast, casual chef. Because most fast, fast, I can't even say it, most fast, casual restaurant groups, um, other than I would say Flock with Corey, um, you don't really get like a sense of there being a chef or someone actually creating the dishes. Like you don't go to Freshie and think like, oh, that's chef. Freshies dish. Um, so they were really looking for someone who had a little bit more of a point of view and I think was willing to learn and grow with them, uh, which I have. Cause when I started, there was only, they just opened their second location. And, um, I mean, initially we were just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it stuck. And again, it was small at that point. There were two. So I'd be like making soup. <laughs> um, and we only have ovens. We use rationales, but there's no range at IQ. Um, no, no other way to heat stuff up. So everything that you see from the pickles to um, the chicken, salmon, it's all done in the oven. Steamed broccoli in the oven, everything in the oven. So I was navigating that, but I would make like you know, 30, 40 liter batches of soup and I'd walk them from one location to the other. And like, it was insane. Um, but in case you haven't guessed, I often take on more than I should. <laughs> and I was like, what extra can I do? You know, that's my personality, which is, I'm working on it in this time. Um, but 
so now it's, it's usually, um, I'm on a more reduced schedule cause I have two, three year olds and I'm their primary caregiver. Um, but I do, um, you know, I'll show up, I'll usually like test some things. Um, I'll usually have a tasting with Alan, um, who's the CEO and my business partner and, you know, Loki, like probably one of my best friends. Um, so we'll often do tastings. We'll kind of go through like what worked, what didn't. Uh, and then we'll, we'll start just stripping away. Uh, it's not, we, we don't bring in people who want to be professional chefs. Some of them do. Like we do have some applicants who come in and are, we're part of their journey, but for the most part, we're hiring people from the community who maybe it's their first job. Um, maybe it's sort of a, a gateway job into a, maybe a more serious restaurant job. But we're certainly not working with too, too many seasoned cooks, especially at an entry level position. Um, so when I'm designing the menu and the recipe cards uh, and I do the some, well, most of the photography as well. I'm really thinking about making things that are executable um, to someone at any level and then also scalable. So I'm looking at batch size. I don't test for, you know, a kilo of sweet potatoes. I'm not, I'm not doing mise en place um, when we're under normal operations. I'm not doing mise en place to sort of feed 30 people. Um, at our peak, we're serving sort of 20,000 people a week out of nine restaurants. Um, we do not have commissary, so every restaurant cooks their own food. And there's just this huge ops piece that even if I make this delicious soup or a really good chicken rub, a really good chia pudding, I have to think like, well, can like can the average person coming in off the street, um, can they execute this uh, consistently and make it perfect? And do that, but at a scale where you're serving like 5,000 people a day out of your own restaurant. So it's definitely not, not what I was doing a decade ago, but it, it's fun and it's challenging in its own way. And I've really liked leaning into the simplicity um, and not having sort of superfluous ingredients. And again, when I first started, I was like, let's do a ginger kelp noodle salad. <laughs> like the teams would be like supreming grapefruits for other things. And now it's like, nope, you know, what, what can we bring in that's already really excellent in terms of quality produce? Summer's a great time for us because we end up bringing in the greens from the new farm, which are, um, they're not just sustainable, you know, what they do is they do regenerative agriculture. So they're actually taking carbon and locking it back into the ground. And I know they work with some smaller restaurants and that's really exciting because you have sort of boutique places. Um, like I think, uh, I know that some of Grant Van Gameren's restaurants use their greens and that's amazing because you end up also moving quite a bit of product, but I don't think Grant Van Gameren selling 20,000 salads a week. So the impact that we can potentially have by working with really good product, not doing too much to it, um, it really feels kind of meaningful, which is nice as a cook too. So I think we're all, we're all kind of like bleeding hearts, you know, like I think that's some of the reasons we get into the business is we're trying to make a difference. And it's been really interesting in this time, particularly like watching watching chefs and cooks giving so much of themselves, whether it's um, doing food drops at hospitals, 
you know, the guys at, at Sugo and um, Familia Baldessera in Toronto, like, it's incredible what they're doing. Um, or all the chefs and cooks who are just at home, like sharing their recipes. Like I think of um, Rocco from Libretto, who I look up to as a mentor. He's just an incredible dad and incredible um, presence in the, in the chef community. And he's just like giving out his pizza dough recipe, you know, and like no, no other, um, no other field I think is doing that, you know, which is, which is kind of incredible. Like it's a difficult time for so many people, but cooks are still out there just like spilling their, their recipes and their secrets and their, their guts all over Instagram because that's what we do um so how how do you in terms of like operations at iq food is it a conscious decision not to have a commissary would would that not like simplify things or is it literally just you haven't come across no 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 the opportunity the thing about working at scale too is that like we have tried so many things i i I love working with alan um and his brother arthur arthur is our um our chief uh, operating officer. I have no idea what any of the titles mean. All I know is <laughs> does so much of the tech and computer stuff. Um, and so we actually were going to do, we had been planning on doing a commissary. We had modeled it out. We had actually changed one of our kitchens um, out of our Brookfield Place location. They were doing their prep plus prep for like two other restaurants. We had changed our recipes. And we, we were even you know, about to go down the road of being in a space, but the time just didn't work and we weren't seeing a savings. We were seeing a reduction in quality. Um, we were putting everything in plastic bags, which I hate. And like, God loves right. weed. It's cool. I get it, but it's so much plastic and it just makes my skin crawl. Um, so we were kind of having to backpack things and testing gas and all this stuff. And it wasn't, it just didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel real. And, um, we wasted a lot of money and a lot of mental power trying it. And then at the last minute, we just were, we couldn't, we were just like, let's not do this because our food is not going to be as good. And that's one of the things that makes us stand out. Like we make our dressing in small batches. We make our soup every, you know, every day, every two days. Um, and it's all scratch ingredients. It's not like nothing's really coming in pre-made, which again, at our scale is, is exceptional. For sure. So how did you go from being a sort of typical chef who really struggles to delegate and is doing everything yourself to having multiple locations? And like, was there a moment when it just switched and you were just okay with it? Or how did that become something you were okay with? I think, I think, the way that I was when I was working in Massachusetts, um, I was I was obsessed with our restaurant. I would check the TripAdvisor reviews every day, Yelp, whatever. I would cry when they were bad. Uh, I would just go into like a tailspin. And I, and I mean, I remember once it was the first, we just opened the second restaurant. It was the first Sunday. It wasn't even a busy day that I'd had off in, in months since we'd opened and I was off for the night. I think I, I went out with my, my boyfriend at the time or whatever. And the next day there was a TripAdvisor review. And it was, you know, a medium-sized town. But people knew the chef was a female. And um, I guess the fries were soggy. And someone chirped and basically said, you know, 
the chef's not there. Like, no wonder the food's not good or whatever. Maybe she should pay a little more attention to her restaurant. These are the things that you like never forget (laughs) as as a cook, but like I should really let that go. Um, But yeah, I mean, my whole life was this restaurant that I was not partnered in, that I did not own any piece of. Um, And so when I came to IQ, I was really a little bit ready to take a step back. I didn't want to be doing everything. I didn't want to be um, in at 5 a.m. on New Year's Eve setting off the fire detector baking chocolate torts, you know, like that's, it just wasn't fun anymore. And I was too old. Getting old. Um, so at IQ, I really kind of took a step back, but also started leaning more on tools and technology to help me help myself. In so, terms of communicating. Yeah. And also acknowledging, um, that I'm not a great communicator. Like I think I'm 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 better now than I was. I do think it's particularly hard when you're singularly focused um, in a position of authority and female to interact with your team in a way that it always remains professional and it always remains direct and clear. And I found myself many times. Uh, I found myself many times like people coming at me and and criticizing my tone or the way that I talk or my comportment. And a lot of times I think it's because there's this mislaid expectation that I'm a, I'm a woman. So even in a leadership role, I'm going to be nurturing or even in a leadership role, I'm going to um, be willing to compromise or be conciliatory. And I'm not. (laughs) So, I mean, I can be nurturing for sure, but I, I do like to save that for my kids or my dogs um, and not for my team members. And the way that young people often come into the industry now, they're not, they're not prepared for that. They're not prepared for um, the same kind of authority and, and sort of structure that, that I went through. Um, and I recognize that I have to change. I do have to be more nurturing. I do have to, um, I do have to certainly be more willing to listen, take the time to explain things, but it's also a process for me and any way that I can just give someone a recipe card and like a really clear video and not have to have too much two-way conversation. I actually find really helpful for me because I really want to work. I really want to cook. I really want to get my job done, go home that's it. Read a book, cook dinner for my kids. I don't want to have a 14 hour work day. And so when you are in a restaurant, if you're spending six, eight hours of your day, just being people's therapist, um, it's really difficult to actually get your work done. So having different tools to kind of, um, just make things really clear is, is huge for me. Did I back? That was a weird answer. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't even remember what the question was. So you're good. <laughs> um, how do you like a lot of what uh, is being talked about in the industry right now surrounds kitchen culture? Yeah, obviously, like it's a bit of a different ball game for you because you're not in a traditional, like, fine dining kitchen mm-hmm. um, environment. So do you find that that's almost like an easier thing to tackle at IQ because you're not dealing with 
chefs that all have that same background that you like not everyone is trying to struggle to overcome those traditional you know things that you're trying to overcome in terms of like communication and just the way that kitchens operate yeah i mean every kitchen's gonna have their their obstacles and no there may not be the same kitchen culture but it's it's not that different like the prep still has to get done orders have to be received it has to be clean you know you have to put stuff in the oven you have to take stuff out of the oven um and and we're working with a very actually like a a similar pool of employees certainly um as i mentioned before like we don't get too many people who are you know like year five line cooks showing up and if we do um it's great but they're often they're burnt out and they don't want to do a traditional restaurant and they will often come in and be something like they would be a general manager so we have Mm -hmm. quite a few of those but um I just, I do think that anybody working in a restaurant now is dealing with the same shortage of labor um, and dealing with a similar skill level of, uh, of employee and um, an employee who is in a totally different generation worldview than I am for sure. You know, I mean, I'm a, I, I, what did they call it? A zennial. So I had an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. Um, but certainly I think there's a lot of, um, like I've said it before, again and again, um, but there's a lot of people who come to work and, and don't really understand what that means. You know, what is putting on a uniform or what is doing your mise en place? What is being ready on time? Um, and there's a lot of pushback, I think, in any restaurant hiring these young cooks and you need them right so again you have to kind of meet them in the middle do you find i know you've worked all over the place do you find that there's uh like when i was in england or australia for example like the kitchen culture tends to vary a little bit from place to place oh a hundred percent and look do, i do like... you find it super different in the states versus working up here uh i mean states i really i only worked in the restaurant one season under someone else who was a Canadian. And then, um, and then, um, and then it was, you know, kind of my restaurant or they were my restaurants for the next seven years. Um, I found that there was definitely in the States a much, much more significant dependence on, um, on immigrant workforce. Uh, There's a lot of people being paid under the table. Uh, And those are all the people that I'm actually really, um, in this time of COVID concerned about right now, all these people, um, cause Nantucket actually is only, I want to say 17 miles across. And last I spoke to one of my friends there, they've only had about 10, 10 cases on the Island. Um, but like with anywhere, they think there's actually a lot more because of all the, um, the illegal people who are there. Um, and some of them I think are pretty, you know, are living in, larger homes or, or whatever, but some of them, it's a lot of them are all sharing an apartment and they're all together. Um, kitchen culture in the States is definitely, um, it's very similar to Canada, I think, but, um, it's slightly different. France was a real eye opener for me. Um, so I staged there. Basically I worked only five days a week, which was kind of nice. Um, five days a week, get there at nine, um, work, 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 clean, clean, clean. Like this was, uh, I want to say it was a one-star Michelin restaurant. So 
pretty nice restaurant, but the level of cleaning that we had to do there, they had a, a like a jet, um, which you had to kind of spray the hose all over the kitchen. It was like four times a day. Like this kitchen was sparkling. Um, there was only maybe two, three women working there and it was a fairly big brigade, really macho. And really, of course, France, um, they were not huge fans of Americans. So they didn't like me. And I was like, well, I'm Canadian. So it's a little different. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, they were, they were hard on me, but they liked me, um, especially towards the end. Cause I just, I think, cause I just didn't break, but there was definitely some cooks there who wouldn't let me do anything but chop garlic. And I didn't go there when I was 18. I went when I was 26, 27. It wasn't even chopping garlic. I was robocooping garlic. And one of the guys took it away from me. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, dommage. Um, but I, like, that was really interesting too, because you have these cooks who in France, you know, at that time, which now is about 10 years ago, um, you could either be, you know, a priest or a cook or a criminal <laughs> and you know the 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 line between criminal and cook is, is sometimes a little bit blurry anyway but so there was uh, a kind of a misfit crew but then also just like these these boys like literally boys 15 years old couldn't couldn't grow a beard if they tried um who were just so focused and dedicated and were like i'm gonna be a cook that's what i want to do or a chef they want to be a chef um and what's really interesting about it is that when you go to France and you cook, you're making Lièvre Royale, you know, like you're making the same palm souffle that have been made for 400 years. Like you're literally cooking the recipes of like Carême and Escoffier and, you know, yeah. all these guys who wrote the books a million years ago when Catherine de' Medici came, you know. Um, but nothing has changed. Nothing you know, especially in these little towns. So I remember one day for family meal, I had to make a, a quiche and I think I did, I put some goat cheese in it and some leeks and they're like, not a quiche. <laughs> but it's supposed to be, I think quiche Lorraine is the classic. So bacon, onions, gruyere, whatever. So anytime I made something, I deep fried a Brussels sprout and they were like, you Americans, you deep fry everything, huh? And you know, objectively better than boiling them, like taste it, you know? And they're all like, oh, like this, huh? but I would not put it on the menu. And um, it was just really funny because the, the level of technique is so high, just incredible. Just ask them to do a batonet, which is such a cut that nobody does anymore. And they can do it. They can do a perfect brunoise. You can ask them to skin a hair, no problem. Um, but you ask them to like innovate. And it's, they can't, like their brains just don't work like that. But then you go back to Mm -hmm. North America and I'll lump it all back in now. And, you know, all the cooks want to do is innovate. That's the only thing they want to do. They want to take something, they want to take it apart. They want to put it back together. The old deconstruct, reconstruct. Um, They want to put chilies everywhere and pickle spruce tips. And it's just constant innovation, but very little technique. And that's a big difference. And that's, you know, that's what fascinates me. Um, my technique's a little rusty too, but I was, I was deeply appreciative of the experience, um, and of the level of hard work and the lack of, um, the lack of emotion 
in cooking in Europe is, is really actually refreshing because you're just like, yes, chef, no chef. And that to this day, I'm still much more comfortable when people come at me with like clear and exact instructions, because then I feel like I can handle that. You know, if people are using like yeah. the Socratic method and they're like, well, do you think it needs more vinegar or something like that? <laughs> tell me what to do like because i'll do it it would be much yeah. easier if yeah. we could just all you know if we could all just be on that page but that, that doesn't happen over here it's a lot there's a lot more emotion in, in cooking in North America. oh for sure uh, because everyone's coming from such a different place i find mm-hmm. in when if you go to like old world kitchens for lack of a better they kind of there's kind of a standard of this is how we do yeah. things whereas if you've worked you know in the states or in canada or somewhere else it's not it's not as clear yeah. no like, and if you've been tasting the same quiche for 15 years you know what it yeah. tastes like like there's actually yeah, not exactly. a lot of emotion there but if you're developing a new recipe if you're being experimental you know you're looking for feedback mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you are certainly putting a lot more of yourself and a lot more emotion in it's just i think sometimes challenging because then the kitchens get emotional and that's where i'm like oh god like i can't process this <laughs> some of the the things that i think are like the biggest luxury of being a cook who's had the chance to travel um is that you get to take you get to pick and choose which parts you take home with yeah i think um i think that like the best place that i've ever worked was also like the most terrifying yeah absolutely (laughs) so as a chef um you know having people working under me and um managing people a little bit more that's been the thing that I've tried to figure out how to do is how to how to give people that same positive experience mm-hmm. without being the person who made me cry when I was young. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, and I think the interesting thing too is as the as the industry is evolving and morphing, it's really morphing right now. Um, is you do get to go back and think, well, I I took this this piece of you know, that cook or, or whatever, but you can go back and actually kind of move things around. So I'm much, um, I'm much gentler than I used to be. I'm, I'm a much more active listener and I've, there are things that 10 years ago, I would have been like, get out of my kitchen, like go home, you know, like try again tomorrow. Um, and I would never do that now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more like, you know, is there, is there a reason (laughs) or like, walk me through what you're doing, you know? And so I've, I've actually gone back and I've, I've, I've softened a lot and I've tried to create an environment that's, that's less terrifying and strict. And, you know, knowing that the kind of personality that I was, again, I liked that structure and I liked that sense of discipline. Um, but I'm not, uh, 19 year old working in a kitchen for the first time who would much rather be on TikTok <laughs> or looking at a listicle. <laughs> How much of that sort of uh, softening do you think comes from becoming a parent? You think? I think a lot. You know, I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm, everybody now to me, I'm like, that's somebody's baby, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's a balance because I know with my own kids, I'm, I'm certainly not, uh, I mean, so, my boyfriend says I spoil my kids, but I don't, I'm like, I do the whole, like, I'll count to five thing, you know, when they're misbehaving, but I definitely give them a timeout and I'm not one of those parents who's like, 
if you do that again, I'm going to take that thing away and says it like 30 times. I mean, I, I don't have enough time to say something 30 times. Like if they do something wrong, they get a timeout, you know, or they go in their, 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 um, just sit down for 10 minutes. I mean, they're only three, but do you think being a mom has made you a better manager? I, I think I'm, I'm softer with the team for sure. But I also think because my time is so precious now, uh, I am so much more efficient. Like it actually, when I first came back from mat leave, I came back early cause I'd run out of money. Um, so I came back and it's not that early. I came back, uh, two months early, but so I was still like breastfeeding a little bit. Um, I just, that's what you asked me earlier. I, I just moved out to Niagara and like kind of gutted a house on my own. Um, so I was commuting in to Toronto. They'd get up at 5am drive in, go to work for seven. Um, traffic so bad that I'd stay until seven. Um, and then I'd go home and we did have some HR, HR complaints that I was just like terrifying to work with. But I think I was just one, a zombie. And two, I mean, I was just trying to get so much done because I just, for all intents and purposes, been off for 10 months. So there's actually quite a bit of stuff for me to fix, um, that they'd made some changes while I was gone and they didn't really have a support team in place. They just, they hadn't filled my position for 10 months. So when I first came back, I mean, I was incredibly efficient, uh, but I was so focused that it, it scared people. And I feel, I do feel very badly about that. Um, and so now I'm in a place where I've kind of softened, my time is still precious, but I'm not as sort of, I'm not sort of scrambling. And I think when you become a mother, it's a ton of pressure because you have to show that you are still engaged in the work, right? You don't want to go and have a baby and have everybody come back and be like, well, her head's not really in it anymore. Like she's distracted or mommy brain. So they, I, I certainly, I overcompensated for a while. Like they'd be like, here's a list of 10 things to work on over like three months. And I'd be like, boom, it's two weeks later. I'm done, you know? Um, Cause I was just working so, so hard to not, um, to not seem like I was, not capable of doing the work anymore. I also had really bad postpartum. So yeah, I think managing, I continue to evolve, but parenting has, it's, there's nothing like it in terms of the most paradigm shift of your personality. Um, and now too, I mean, I have to bring home a paycheck because I have two humans to support and two dogs. It's expensive. Do you think you could do what you're doing if you were working in a traditional restaurant setting? I mean, Anne Sophie Peake did it, uh, but she's superhuman, so I don't think so. And I don't think I would want to. I mean, and there's there's very few traditional restaurants that I look at and think, wow, I'd love to do that. You know, I mean, now uh, this amazing article the other day just came out by Gabrielle Hamilton. I recommend everybody read it, but you know, it started one way. I didn't know what I was getting into, but my friend Charlotte Langley, who's also um, a chef from the East coast, sent it to me. And, um, so I kind of got into it. I was, I was reading along and, and then, you know, she just starts to talk about the guest and sort of the, this kitchen culture. 
and don't get me wrong, like I've been on chef competition shows. Um, certainly I've used Instagram as a, as a tool to um, share what I'm eating or share what I'm cooking. But she really comes out with like a, a, a criticism of the, the world that we operate in as restaurateurs and that somewhere along the line, like things have kind of gone off the rails and the sense of entitlement that I think a lot of guests have is extremely high and it's unfair at times. And again, going back to what I said before about like, you know, me being barely 30, starting my day with, you know, six espresso shots and crying into TripAdvisor reviews. Like what kind of life is that? It's not a good life. And the amount of work that you put in to make 12 bucks, 13 bucks, 14 bucks an hour. I know when I was working in the States, like the, the cooks made nothing. Um, and to do that, to show up early, to stay late, uh, to work while you're cut or burned or you've broken something or you're having a panic attack, you know, just to make food, like it doesn't, it stopped making sense to me a while ago, um, but I think it's it started to stop making sense to people everywhere now. And it's kind of nice to see because I think we need to have a big conversation about what dining out is worth and the the amount that people are willing to sacrifice their own lives just to feed other people i think that that's kind of like the underbelly of hospitality is that most people unless you have a family member who's a cook or or server or bartender you don't know what potentially goes into it no and for idea. what reward and, and i'm not even talking just about um just about the cooks like let's talk about the farmers let's talk about the the people coming up from like san salvador and ecuador who are washing the dishes picking the tomatoes like all of this stuff like you know and and anytime that someone um is getting food that's three dollars four dollars five dollars you know if you order a burger from mcdonald's and you think about the traditional you know and McDonald's would have a very good food cost. Their food cost is probably like 10%, but like, you know, well, probably 12. Um, traditional restaurant model, 30% profit, 30% labor, 30% food cost. But when you get these these meals that are ch- cheap or you're getting a buy one, get one free, there's a squeeze happening somewhere. And you better believe that the squeeze is not happening in the profit, you know? Um, the squeeze is happening in either the food cost which is squeezing a farmer or a worker on the other end, um, or it's it's squeezing your labor. And so many people don't realize the amount of free labor that goes into the industry or underpaid or, um, or just barely minimum wage paid, which is not enough, you know? So um, I think exposing that and talking about it is really important. And again, there's no other industry where people feel like they are in, they should, people feel such a need to like constantly judge you and assess you and share about it. Like I don't go to the dentist and be like, you know what? Like it was pretty good, but I think they could have cleaned my back maybe a little more. And I, I, I get that people want to participate. I, I get foodie culture and it's one of the things that's made restaurants and, and chefs like, you know, like I, everybody knows who Thomas Keller is, you know, everybody knows who 
I'm trying to think of a Toronto rep. Seuss Lee is a great example where people know who they are because they're like rock star chefs. Um, and so, you know, at what point do you kind of go back to this sort of humble chef in the restaurant, good food, plated, not for an Instagram photo, but just plated nice, nice food. Maybe it's brown. Maybe you're eating a big plate of brown, which is like my favorite thing to eat. Um, <laughs> but when does it come back when everyone sort of settles down? And like, what does that look like? What does it look like on the restaurateur, like chef end? And what does it look like on the guest end? Because it has to be, um, I think both sides need to kind of make some changes. My hope is that the one good thing that might come out of all of what we're going through right now is that, you know, your average person looks looks at a business that's been shut down for six weeks and go, why can't they just tighten their belt? Why can't they be closed for six weeks and come out on mm-hmm. the other side? I think um, restaurants are potentially quite unique in the fact that even a really successful restaurant with, um, you know, like a big menu cost is actually still just month to month every month no matter how long they've been in operation absolutely yeah yeah and i think your average person just does not know mm-hmm. that and so this whole situation hopefully sheds a light on that and just brings the whole value conversation of restaurants and food to the forefront a little bit more yeah and i think just people like figuring out what that math looks like but then also the place that restaurants have in their lives i mean even the other day i drove past um we have like a, a little local, it's called Habaneros here and it's, it's Tex-Mex. It's, you know, I don't think they're sourcing everything uh, <laughs> locally. Um, although it is authentic flavor, but yeah, it's, it's not a place that normally I would drive by and think hmm, I could really go for some Habaneros right now. But yeah, the other day I was like, I would, I would kill. Well, I would not, but I would do a lot just to be able to go out to like a nice dinner and drink like a slushy blue drink with my boyfriend, like in a setting that's not my own home and have someone else do the dishes, have someone else like take care of everything. Like that would be great. And I would pay a lot to go to have an arrows right now. So I'm hoping that more people also feel that way and, and appreciate the work. And in much the same way that we've sort of reassessed, like what is an essential worker? Um, you know, like the, the people working in grocery stores right now during this, this epidemic or, you know, at the post office, it's like, you're sort of like seeing them in a new light where you're like, you are such a valuable part of my life. Um, and you are doing good work for so many people. No, I mean, not to mention the doctors and nurses, but I don't see them in a grocery store. But, but they kind of always get that same admiration. Yeah. And, and respect and appreciation. Yeah, the UPS guys right now, you're just like, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that, yeah, there is going to be a bit of a reorganization of society. And um, yeah, I, I love that, uh, you know, the, the people stocking the grocery stores right now and working at the cash are getting paid more. And um, I'm certainly willing to pay for that because it's totally a valuable um a value like a valuable job that we need done and in the same way i think when we come back like more people will be i think choosing a little bit more carefully when they eat out but certainly i think like oh man i can't wait to line up at the bar at manhattan's and get some chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think everyone's feeling like that. Yeah, just, I don't know, something to make you feel normal. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. It's great to be back. We've got some super exciting episodes coming up, and we're so grateful for the response to the podcast so far. Uh, If you're enjoying the podcast and our recent episodes, please subscribe, share with your friends, and if you have two seconds, it would mean the world to me if you left a quick review and share what you enjoy about the podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great day.